Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Here for, again, one of our daily podcasts that we're doing here in the month of January. And um, Peyton and I are, are both really looking forward to this uh, interview that we've got scheduled. Um, uh, we've got with us on the line today uh, someone who uh, you've heard us talk about, at least you've heard us uh, talk about uh, her in the context of her husband, um, who is Saeed Abedini, who is right now uh, in jail over in Iran um, for his faith. And uh, uh, Nagme, we, we are just so blessed and grateful that, that we've got you on the line here with us. Yes, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's our pleasure. You know, for some of our listeners uh, who might be just joining us and aren't familiar with the whole story, um, can you kind of take us back and tell us the, the whole story in the, in the terms of uh, perhaps maybe how you came to faith and then uh, how uh, you and Saeed uh, met? Because I don't know any of that story. And then, you know, take us through to, to where we're at today. Yes, well, I uh, moved to the U.S. when I was a small, small, small child. I was eight or nine years old in the 80s. And uh um, it was because of a war between Iran and Iraq that uh, was happening that our family moved here. And soon I was in California for about a year, um, northern towards uh, San Francisco area. And um, when we came to the States, my parents were Muslim, and that's all we'd learned in Iran was, you know, the religion of Islam. But soon after we came, I ha- my twin brother had a vision of Jesus. And uh, he was very excited and uh, told me, uh, and of course, we're best friends. And he just was so overcome by this vision that I accepted Christ right there. We had to 
search and ask people who's just this Jesus and how can we follow him? And finally, um, someone gave, you know, told us and gave us some Bibles and, and we prayed, you know, and accepted him into our hearts. And, uh, my father, um, was not there when this happened. My family was not there. And, uh, when they found out they were very angry, they thought, you know, the secular, um, elementary schools in California were, con- were you know, Western, making us westernized and, and con- had converted us. And so my dad um, had to make a decision to go back to Iran or um, where there was a war and there was a high possibility of us dying. Or someone suggested to him, he had a brother in California who had found a job in Idaho. So his brother suggested, you know, I found a job in this somewhere called Boise, Idaho. I'm sure it's small. You can de brainwash your kids back to Islam. And so my dad decided to give it a try. Um, they tried very hard to, uh, from the time we were nine till we were 18, to bring us back to Islam. They took us our Bibles away and wouldn't let us go to church. But about 10 years after our conversion, uh, both my parents and my younger sibling gave their hearts to Jesus. So um, uh, in Idaho, that which is interesting uh, because it's a, a place where they ran away to uh, from Christianity, from California to Idaho. But um, my journey with Said started um, soon after I graduated from college uh, in 2001. I felt called by God to go back to Iran, and I didn't know. I wasn't. I was never a missionary. I didn't know what why I was going back. My Farsi was not that good. I hadn't been in Iran. Um, I hadn't lived there since I was eight or nine, and since I was in elementary, um, I felt like I couldn't even speak Farsi very well, but I just felt called mm. to go back. So I packed up and went, um, didn't really, uh, didn't really uh, know, understand about fundraising or anything like that. So I just uh, got a job in Iran and uh, lived there, worked, you know, eight to five, and then in the afternoon, I would go to my cousins, people I hadn't known for years. I would go to their house, share the gospel, and, uh, you know, really close people because I knew that um, if I tried to just street evangelize or something, I'd, I'd get in trouble and I might be put in prison. So I was very careful. Within a year, by the year 2003, um, there was, or 2002, there was about five, six people in my church or in my Bible study that had come to know Christ. Three of them were my cousins and a few friends, co-workers. And so there was just a few that had accepted Christ. And I felt, okay, I shared with as many people as I could. And um, these people gave their hearts to Christ, so I'm done. So I was about to come back to the U.S. when I met Saeed. Um, and he was the underground church pastor of about 150 people. And it was through, you know, um, I had a cousin that had accepted Christ before I even had gone to Iran. She was one of the first um, that had uh, accepted Christ in Iran. And she kept inviting me to this legal church that was, uh, that was you know, monitored by the government. But I was afraid to go because I knew if I went, I would be monitored as well and go under the radar. But wow. eventually, since I since I thought I'm leaving Iran, I ended up going to that church um, for the you know just uh, because I thought, well, I'm leaving Iran, so I'm not even if I go under the radar, it's not going to be a problem. 
So I went to that church, and that's how I met Saeed. He was wow. studying in the underground Bible school and had started churches. And, you know, um, we met in 2000, towards the end of 2002. We were engaged in 2003 and married in 2004. By the time we left Iran in 2005, over 2,000 Muslims had given their hearts to Christ in over 30 cities and mm. over 100 house churches. So it was growing pretty rapidly, and that's actually why we left, because we the government had taken note of us. And Ahmadinejad became president in 2005 and had said that he would uh, outroot Christianity, you know, destroy Christianity in Iran. And and uh, Said had, we noticed there was more arrests of our house church members, and Said was wanted for questioning. So we decided to leave in 2005, knowing that our presence there, since we were so high profile with the government, would cause more problems with the house churches. So that's the story up to 2005. Um, uh, you want me to uh, explain until his recent arrest? Well, yeah, I yeah. definitely do. But before we get to that, one of the questions that I've got is um, related basically to, you know, you're going back to Iran how do you like? Did ever? I'm sure. Obviously, since you became uh, um, a Christ follower at a younger age, and your family was, as you put it, um, you know, trying to get rid of the brainwashing of Christianity. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that your relatives back in Iran had heard about that you'd become a Christian, right? I mean, it, it wasn't yeah. like news to them. So, yeah. how did your witnessing happen? with your family when you got back to Iran? I mean, was it just like, hey, you know, I'm your long-lost relative, and, you know, it just came out of, you know, family gatherings and friendships and just conversations? I mean, is that, you know, kind of how it how it started to happen? I started going, uh, you know, come, going back to Iran. A lot of my relatives hadn't seen me, and so they'd invite, there'd be, you know, get-togethers, and I just started making a relationship with my cousins that I hadn't met, you know, I hadn't known for years. And I just, you know, I just told them, I said, I believe I'm here specifically for you. I don't know. It doesn't make sense um, why I would leave everything in the U.S. I was studying to be a medical doctor. I left that. Um, I left the American dream. My dad is a businessman. I was you know, on the road to making money and having, you know, the American dream. And it just didn't didn't make sense when the Lord told me. Uh, actually, um, um, because I didn't want to go back to Iran, I actually went to India for a while, uh, wanting to be a missionary there, um, thinking, I'm not going to go back to Iran. It's ridiculous. I'd rather go to India. And the Lord spoke to me in India and said, no, I, I want you to go to Iran, not India. So I just was honest with my cousins and friends. I said, I don't know why I'm here. It doesn't make sense. Everyone's leaving Iran. I'm coming back to Iran. Um, I had, I could have had the American dream there, uh, medical school, uh, money, future, but I just had such a strong, I just heard God so clearly to come back mm. and tell you about Jesus. And it was powerful for them because no one comes back to Iran. It's just not, it's dangerous. It's, um, people are escaping that country. And so for them to see, why would she, after, I don't know, 20 years or something, um, 15 years, come back to Iran, and and all she wants to do is tell us about this Jesus. So it, they were 
uh, very interested. They were very amazed um, to hear about that. So um, it just, I was just honest with them. I said, I don't know. I just know I'm being, I was sent here for you mm-hmm. and to tell you about Jesus. And, and so they, you know, not all of them, I have, you know, many relatives, but a small number accepted Christ. And, um, but soon after, I mean, after Said and I met and our wedding and everything, more and more of our, my relatives and his relatives ended up coming to know Christ as well. Hmm. Let me ask you, um, real quick before we head back into, uh, what happened with, um, Pastor Said. Uh, what is the difference between the legal and the illegal church, the underground church and the monitor church? Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Well, the legal church, uh, uh, I know it's confusing for a lot of people and outside of Iran, or um, it's pretty much like China. People, you know, in close countries, people would understand this better. A legal church is what we would consider church here in the U.S. It's like a building church. It's um, it's it, it, there's a certain location. It's a church building where people come in and out, where the government uh, has allowed for that church building to stand. Now, in the 70s, when the Iranian Revolution happened, when it became Islamic Revolution of Iran, before then there was churches in Iran. There was um, there was Americans in Iran. There was missionaries in Iran before 1979, and so that when the revolution happened, the government allowed those churches that had already existed to exist, to continue to exist, but they wouldn't allow any more churches to be built. They wouldn't allow any of these churches to expand, to get more land, or even in their courtyard, they couldn't expand the church. So these are churches that had stood for, you know, decades um, before the revolution. So the government allowed them to stay open. Most of them spoke speak uh, Armenian and Assyrian, which is not the Iranian language. The Iranian language is Farsi. So the government didn't see it as a threat mm. because these churches spoke the language that the Muslims didn't understand. And it was a very small mi- minority understood. Um, it's like Spanish and for, for the, you know, Mexicans or whatever. It was just most of Iranians, 99.99% of Iranians don't understand Armenian or Assyrian. And those were most of the churches that were left open. There was a few that were left that were sparsely speaking. But these uh, churches are monitored by the government. That means anyone going in and out, um, their names are given to the government. The government monitors them, and any second they can arrest them. Um, they monitor uh, who goes in and out and every activity. The house churches is people meeting in houses. And um, a lot of times, so that the neighbors don't take notice of why these people are gathering Every night at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, every Tuesday, uh, we would change. Usually house churches don't necessarily meet on a certain location every week. They change locations so they don't go under the radar. Um, people just meet in houses uh, where the government doesn't know. I mean, I can't monitor every house and cat doesn't know if this gathering is just a party, a birthday party, or if it's people gathering for church. So um, the house church, the government can't control it. It's growing rapidly. Um, And so um, that's considered by the Iranian government illegal because they can't control it. They can't monitor it. They don't know who's coming in and out, who's the Christian. And, um, you know, since the 1970s, when the revolution happened in Iran, Islamic revolution, before 1979, there was maybe 500 Christians in Iran, and those included Orthodox people who were born into Christianity. 
um, now people estimate somewhere between 500,000 minimum to a few million to a couple million. And so it's just most of these people are in the house churches. They're meeting in houses, there's worship, there's prayer. It's like a church. It's like a small church. There's teaching and, um, you know, and so most of these uh, Christians are no longer in these big building churches that the government monitors. They're meeting in houses. And, and so the government feels threatened because they can't control the spread of it. They can't monitor it. And so they call it, as you mentioned, illegal gatherings. So what, what happened with your husband, Pastor Saeed? Um, well, we, as, as, as I mentioned, we came to the U.S. in 2005. In 2009, we decided to go back to Iran. We felt things had slowed down. Uh, with maybe with you know Christian persecution, the Iranian government was going through some political turmoil, and so we thought you know Christianity is not no longer a top priority for them. We went back um, for a few weeks. I took I was working, so I took a few weeks off, and um, Said was taken in and interrogated, not put in prison, but interrogated for a few months. Uh, he would go in in the morning and come home at night. Um, and he was told, you know, we know about your house church uh, activity. We know what you've done. If you promise to discontinue with the house church movement, um, we allow you to come back. We know, you you know, because I told him I'm a Christian. I love this country. I want to serve this country. And and they said, well, um, we allow you to come back and you can. Why do you have to do house church? You can do humanitarian effort. So in 2009, after that agreement with the Iranian government, we prayed about it. And, you know, our heart was house church. That's how that's how everything was started when Saeed was saved and yeah. his passion was to preach the gospel. So, But we felt, okay, we're going to follow the Iranian government's suggestion and just go with this, what we're allowed. So we started the orphanage, and Saeed had traveled many times between 2009 and 2012, um, more than nine, ten times working on this orphanage. The kids and I went back with him in Iran um, in 2010, and um, uh, and nothing. You know, we he, we trusted the government. We said, okay, they haven't arrested us. We're not doing house church anymore. On in June of 2012, Said left the U.S. to finish the orphanage. We got an approval on everything except we had one more board member to approve. And um, we had to finish the building. We had to put the windows up and stuff. And so he went back, and I dropped him off at the airport. He was supposed to come back three, four weeks later in July. And that was the last time I saw him. And uh, we it was a shock when um, he was coming. He was supposed to come back in July, and they, they said, no, you're under house arrest. We're investigating something. And he kept calling the passport office, the intelligence police saying why. I don't understand why I'm not allowed to leave. And in September, they, the Revolutionary Guards attacked his parents' house where he was staying and then took him to Evan Prison, where he has been um, tortured and beaten because of his Christian faith. In January of 2013, he was convicted. He was convicted eight years uh, of eight years in prison, and the basis they said that um, Said was undermining the national security of Iran, and that because of uh, Christian gatherings, 
which they dated it back to the year between 2000 and 2005, when all the house church activities were happening before Saeed and I left the country. Right. So uh, they went back to years earlier when it was under a different government. It was under a more moderate president. His name was Khatami, and they gave him eight years in prison. Um, it's interesting enough that the Iranian government in its own laws and also in international laws, they're part of the Human Rights Council at the UN, they say they allow for conversions. And they say they actually allow for peaceful gatherings of religious minorities, but that's in their law. So they're the ones who uh, are breaking the law and keeping Saeed. Um, but they're, you know, they they say they allow even for peaceful gatherings of Christians in homes um, of, of of religious minorities. And that's mm-hmm. why there's been such an outcry from the UN. There's been outcry from the European Parliament, European Union, from all over the world. Um, about Saeed's arrest because he, you know, some people say, well, he went back, he broke the law, he needs to face whatever law he broke. According to Iranian government's own admission, he didn't break any law. They just felt threatened by his presence. And wow. Iranian law actually allows for Christian, uh, peaceful gatherings of religious minorities, including Christians. But because it's Christianity spreading so rapidly, um, they're using Saeed as an example. Um, to spare people from becoming Christians. And recently, over the last year, they've closed down building churches. The very few, there was three maybe in all of Iran that spoke Farsi, and they've already shut down two of them. So they are already even shutting down their own government-approved building churches. Now those are being shut down as well. So it just shows that Christianity and the um, people becoming Christians and the growth number of people becoming Christians is, is, is becoming very threatening to the Iranian government. They treat it as the U.S. government would treat terrorism. They see it as a high national security threat. And so they're yeah. doing whatever they can to stop it. Right. Now, um, we featured in Church Planner magazine uh, Saeed's story. And we had a lot of correspondence that we were able to put in there, the stuff that was made public. Um, how often do you get word from Saeed while he's in prison? You know, I don't, I can't um, get updates un- unless someone visits him. And his family in Iran, his parents have been the ones visiting him and providing updates. It, it was, there was more of a communication when he was in Evan prison. Um, but with this new prison, he's been moved to Rajaisha prison. The communications have dropped. It's become harder. Um, and uh, over the last month, especially um, his family has been traveling, visiting, you know, other, um, his other siblings who are out of the country now because of persecution so there hasn't been a visit over the last month, and I haven't had much news. Um, I hope to get more news as the visits uh, pick back up in the next week. And so most of my most of my updates come from his parents visiting him in okay. prison. Now I can remember uh, when we spoke to Zibanda, his sister, who was quite uh, an on fire evangelist. I mean, she was mm-hmm. she was very impressive. Um, but she had mentioned the fact that um, uh, Saeed was, was obviously, when he was able to share the gospel in prison, that uh, that was having an effect. 
that uh, one of the visitors who visited with, um, uh, I guess, uh, Saeed's parents had met someone in the, the waiting room, and they kind of leaned over and said, hey, we're Christians now. Our, our son is in that prison, and he was converted by your son. And, uh, you know, and it, it, and obviously it was having, you know, through the bars, mm-hmm. it was basically sharing the gospel. He, with you know, and Evan, and Evan, he's led more than 30 people to Christ. Um, just two people who have, he led and then his, their family members. I've actually led a, um, have led wives to Christ whose husbands have become Christian, whose husbands have become Christians in prison and they, contact me and they say there's something different about my husband he told me to ask you and so I, I've, I've been able to share about Christ with prisoners wives whose husbands have become Christians through Saeed and um, so it's been you know it's been amazing seeing the impact he's had he's there's been guards and there's been um, people when he's been taken to the hospital saying oh you know he's changed my life and his son you know just Two different ways we've heard doctors and their people who've been in contact with them, how he has hearing reports of people he's led to Christ, um, you know, and so it's just been amazing. And those are people that are um, in those prisons. They're they're at least in Evan. They were political prisoners for leaders um, in their you know community. He's led from Jewish to very radical Muslim groups leaders of radical Muslim groups to Christ, which uh, he got in trouble for that. Uh, the other followers were mad that this radical leader had converted to Christianity. But he's, you know, there's, God has t- t- given him a variety of leaders of different religions and backgrounds that he was able to share Christ with, and, and which made it easier for me, knowing that his imprisonment is not in vain. He is in there for a purpose. Now, with this new prison, we don't know as much. Um, we know that when the dad was able to visit him, um, the head of this prison said, there's no way Say can lead anyone to Christ here because these murderers and rapists are so radical. Mm-hmm. They would take his life if he tried. But, you know, but again, through different people and ways we've heard that otherwise has happened. Oh, that's great. Um, and so it's great, you know, and so actually, the, this, these news actually make it easier for me because um, that I know, okay, Lord, you're doing something. He's in there for someone, and um, yeah. and it just makes it easier to endure, even though it's difficult. Yeah. It's 2014, and it's hard. Every year, it gets harder to know he's not with our family. Yeah. yeah. How how long has it been now exactly, Nagme? It's been almost 500 days um, that he's been in prison, but uh, I, I would almost um, 600, 700 days that we have 600 days that we haven't seen him, um, and it's almost two years that we haven't seen him. Um, but it just gets harder, you know. Uh, we've had second birthdays for my kids, uh, second, you know, uh, second yeah. Christmas. Second. Yeah. So the year, just realizing the seconds are coming up, and and it's just, and I've tried, I've traveled, I've spoken, I will be speaking at the human rights um, in UN in Geneva soon again about human rights issues in Saeed, and so it's just, um, 
you know, it's hard to know another year has passed. He's been there almost 500 days and, um, you know, but, and he's not free yet. And I've, we've tried so many different efforts, but to know that God is in control and he knows Absolutely. the time that Saeed is to be there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, Nagme, when, when we talk to somebody like you, I know Pete, um, we, we, uh, we spoke to, uh, and we were blown away and it just has a way of, uh, of just humbling you, you know, like you, there's nothing we can say to you. I mean, maybe an occasional encouragement, but you are living your faith. There's nothing we can tell you. You are, uh, you are living, um, everything that you find in the pages of scripture. This is real Christianity. I mean, it just, uh, it's humbling to talk, to talk to you. It, yeah. it just, well, I've seen traveling. I've seen a lot of people go through a lot. Um, uh, he's given me the grace for this burden. I could have never thought I could carry it. Um, so I know he. we all have our own burdens and trials that he gives us grace to carry. And um, I just see the beauty of it is no tasting the reality of Jesus. And it's been the blessing in my life this year, just being so broken and so desperate to reach out and... Um, really taste God and really, really sense him and to see him caring. You know, I, I just could have never imagined I could even breathe with this burden and to yeah. know that he's giving me the strength. And so, you know, I, I do pray that outside of the people becoming Christians in Evan and actually the courage this has given the house church churches to continue and grow mm-hmm. has been amazing. The feedback I've received from inside of Iran, but also I'm hoping that it will encourage and, um, and, uh, the church here that yes. people could, would just, uh, have a new sense of desire to follow God and to be submitted and committed to him. Amen. Amen. You know, um, I, I want to ask a question, um, and you know, it's, it's okay if you don't want to go there. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, and, it, and it's probably going to be a difficult question. Um, what physical danger is Saeed in, um, from day to day? You know, un- unfortunately things got worse for him, um, a few months ago where he was moved to, uh, Rajay Shah prison, um, when he was, uh, you know, to, for punishment or some sort, they put him in the murder ward where there's, um, we know from the visits, the few visits that the family has made, um, he was being threatened at gunpoint, or I mean, at knife point, there's knives in there. Um, there is, uh, his, you know, outside of the uh, internal bleeding and kidney issues and just medical issues he already had. Uh, because of beatings in Evan prison, in yeah, this he, new prison, uh, just he... just to interrupt you real quick. Um, many of our listeners may not realize that um, he was beaten so badly and so neglected um, that he almost he almost died. Yeah, he's. It takes a lot for the Iranian government to take a prisoner to the hospital, um, and he was taken a few times in uh, when he was in Evan because of the beatings. Um, and the initial be- beating happened the first few months he was arrested and put in solitary and interrogated. And that one pretty much uh, just 
uh, his internal bleeding started there and those beatings afterwards that made it worse. And so outside of the normal physical um, trials he has because of those beatings with the internal bleeding and the kidneys and everything else, now he faces uh, death. I mean, that death threats every second, every minute. And his um, dad visited this new prison and saw the saw the high security, like the concrete concrete ground, you know, floor and the metal bars. Realizing this is a different kind of a security where they're trying to protect guards and people from these really uncontrolled murderers, and has and sites there with them all the time. And these are, you know, a lot of them are in drugs, they're drug addicts, there's, um, you know, unfortunately there's drugs in the, in the prison, they, they lose control, they, they, Said had seen a few of his cellmates um, get knifed and killed in, in their throat and on their wrists, and so he's seen uh, um, uh, suicide happening, he's seen um, fellow cellmates killing each other in, in front of him, where in, in the uh, cell he's in, in the section he's in, the guards are afraid to go in and try to control the prisoners, so they let him do whatever violence. So he's there, um, which which it's again it's illegal by the Iranian government because you're supposed to be put in the same prison or in the same section as people of your own crime. So he's supposed to be with the political prisoners, or he was put in with murderers and rapists, and he's had a few. You know, um, uh, you know, he's had a few uh, uh, sexual um, attempts. You know, there's been people who've really bothered him and things like that. And so it's just the reality of it. He's in there with people who are on death row because of rapes and murders. And that's who they are. But, um, you know, initially it was hard for me to understand that and why God would allow it. But, um hmm. Over time, I've realized that those are the people that need Jesus most. Yeah. Those are people that have no hope. And Jesus would hang out with these murderers and rapists. And, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, honored to know that God has counted sight worthy enough to reach out to these people that would otherwise not hear the gospel because they're on death row and they've committed horrendous, you know, horrific um, crimes. That Said gets to share Christ with them while he's there and be a light. Wow, what you know? What can we, as a, a listening, you know, population, uh, what, what can we do to help? I mean, what is it that? How, how can we, you know, be there with you in all of this? You know, uh, when 2014 came, I one of my the questions I asked myself is, what now? I've gone before the Congress. I've gone before the UN. I've spoken to people who, um, to you know, um, Franklin Graham and uh, politicians, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, senators, congressmen. Uh, you know, even people such as um, uh, just people in the you know anyone and everything. Speaking before the UN, talking to ambassadors and government officials, and I would I just. I, I just have said, what now, Lord? And I feel like really, you know, prayer is um, really what I would ask for more than anything right now. Um, it's the most powerful tool we have. And it's it's the most, um, you know, God moves. And so 
I do believe in the power of prayer. I would just yeah. ask for prayer, for especially for direction and wisdom for me. Uh, I know just that the Lord would um, continue to direct my steps. I don't want to take any steps that, um, you know, not directed by Him, and it's from my flesh. And yeah. uh, that the Lord would just continue to use this for His glory, for His church, and... Uh, for, you know, the Muslims in Iran, but just prayer yeah. for sight, safety, for his release, for my kids, you know, it's been difficult for them. They've gone through a lot this year. So just prayer, a lot of prayer. Nagme, yeah. And let me just say that uh, before we close, um, you know, prayer, when you say that, like people who pray say, please pray because they know the power. If you, when you're not praying, you don't, understand the weight of prayer you can feel it when you're praying and you're seeking the face of god um you you sense that now this this is a church planning audience so these are people that are often out of their depth um you know they're they're uh they're having to pray because they're desperate yes because they're under pressure yeah 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 and i mean you know from from the ministry that that you and saeed have done it just you need the Holy Spirit. It, it's nothing's going to happen. And um, yes, you, you know, can't force. Ask to be God's hand, and you know, um, you just are under, especially with the church planting and the ministry. There's so much pressure and so much ups and downs and so much struggles. You have to be on your face before God, yeah. and it has to be His hand. And so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, people understand who are listening understand the power of prayer because that's where it happens where you're seeking god and if he doesn't move it's you know useless to try to move it has to be you know it just has to happen the majority of the work happens in prayer yeah and in in my own reading today i was reading about peter you know where he was uh chained between two guards and uh and it specifically says that uh, the community there was praying for him uh, fervently. And it links exactly. that. And it says in the middle of the night, you know, the, the angel comes and Peter thinks he's in a in, in a trance. You know, he doesn't realize <laughs> till he gets outside, hey, this is actually really happening right now. This is not a vision or a dream. But my hope is that our listeners will uh, hear this and take Hebrews 13 to heart that says, uh, brothers, um, you know, remember those mm. who are in chains as if you yourself were chained exactly. next to them. We are part of a renegade faith. Uh, we, you know, the first century leaders were outlaws. Mm. Said is one of my heroes, and it has been an absolute honor to have you on. Is uh, before we get off, Nagme, is there um, how are your needs being met, and is there a way that people can help support? Uh, your family and Saeed? You know, I, I have. You know, one of my weaknesses uh, before this trial was worrying about uh, trivial things such as finances and such. And the Lord has just, you know, He shows me it's Him and it's His hand because people just come up and say, the Lord has put this in my heart to give you. And He has provided above and beyond um, our need. And wow. Um, really, I mean, I'm not trying to, um, I don't know, really, I have to say the biggest pressure, uh, especially this year, just the last couple of weeks, realizing it's 2014 has been the burden of what now and prayer, you know, just, I just feel so much burden lifted off of me when I know 
there's people committed to prayer. And so um, I really can't say enough how much that's what I need right now. That's what our family needs right now. And I know that's what Saeed needs right now. Mm. And so really, I would ask listeners to just take it seriously. I know some people put alarm clocks for as a family to remember to when it rings to, okay, we're going to pray for five minutes for Saeed or something. I would say just remembering us in prayer. Because yeah. God is, He's provided and He continues to provide. And Amen. He's just, He takes care of His servants. Well, Nagme, it has been an honor, as I've said many times so far, but, uh, you know, it, it, it is amazing to, uh, just hear the strength. Um, you can actually hear the Lord holding you. Um, I know it's been the same with Saeed. We've kept, uh, updated. Mm. We want to keep updated. We will pray. And I know our, uh, listeners will pray. Um, just want to thank you for coming on and keep us posted as to what's going on. Yeah, yeah very of much. Of course. So. Thank you for covering this and praying. I appreciate it. Well, hey, this has been the Church Planner Podcast, and you know it puts a new spin on our uh, catchphrase that we say at the end of every show, but it's no more, uh, it's never been more true than with our guest today. And this has been the Church Planner Podcast reminding you if you want to reach the ones that nobody's reaching, you need to go where no one's going and do what no one's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Church